welcome to Little Bodies, Mighty Hormones, a podcast that delves deep into the world of pediatric weight management and hormone health. Join me, Dr. Rinku Mera, as I embark on a journey to unravel the mysteries of these tiny bodies with enormous potential. Here, I will guide you through the intricacies of nurturing healthy lifestyles, fostering hormonal balance, and empowering our youngest generation to thrive. So whether you're a concerned parent, a healthcare professional, or simply curious about the wonders of pediatric health, you're in for an enlightening ride. Stay tuned for expert insights, inspiring stories, and actionable advice to help our little ones reach their full potential. Let's embark on this empowering journey together. Today, we are going to talk about PCOS and fertility in young adults. And this is a condition that's really near and dear to my heart because I've been treating girls with PCOS for over 15 years now. And I get a lot of questions from moms, from the teens themselves, from college girls about PCOS and what it means for their fertility. And so I'm really delighted to have you here today with us. So you're welcome. So Dr. Carolina Sweldo is a double board certified fertility specialist. And she is currently practicing in her hometown of Fresno, California. She completed her residency training at UCSF in Fresno and her fellowship in reproductive endocrinology and infertility at the University of Connecticut. Dr. Swaldo has been a speaker at multiple national meetings, and she's an international speaker throughout Latin America. And she's the go-to local media women's health expert in the Central Valley. So she has lots of positions with the women's health community. And she is passionate about empowering women through education about their fertility. And we connected because we have similar interests in women's health. And so I'm really happy to have her here today to talk about fertility and PCOS. So Dr. Swoto, I get a lot of questions about PCOS and irregular cycles and teens and college girls. And I also get a lot of questions, like I said, about fertility. And so I just wanted to talk to you first about You know, the age group that I typically see, of course, is girls, you know, 12 and above who had their periods. But when we talk specifically about fertility, you know, a lot of times the moms are the ones that are coming and asking about what is normal and what's not normal. And, you know, so the first thing I want to talk to you about is cycles, menstrual cycles. And I tell my patients certain things, but I wanted to know what do you tell your patients about what is a normal menstrual period? Yeah, that's a great question. So you know, the classic teaching or the classic textbook teaching is 28-day cycles. Now, there is variability to that, and typically that's plus minus a week. So anything from 21 to 35 days can be considered regular. But in addition to cycle length, the other question that's important is, are your cycles consistent month over month? So if you have a pretty typical, predictable 21-day cycle, I would call that normal. Or if you have a pretty predictable monthly 33-day cycle, I would also call that normal. Now, if one month it's 21 days, the next month it's 34 days, the next month it's 24 days, the next month it's 36 days. So, so it still falls within that normal range, but varies month to month. Then I think it's worth exploring a little bit more. Certainly anything outside of that norm is definitely warranting evaluation. 
You know, I think particularly in young teens or college age girls, not having a period is a good thing, right? You don't have to worry about bleeding. You don't have to worry about period care, missing out on activities. And so they may not view it as something unhealthy or abnormal. But my response to that is if you are a young, reproductive age, healthy female, you should be having regular monthly cycles. Unless, of course, you're on some form of contraception, right? So there are different birth control methods that can potentially alter your menses. But if you're not on any hormone suppression, you should be having a monthly cycle and a predictable one at that. So if it's not predictable, if it's not monthly, those are scenarios where okay. you definitely want to and be talking to you a tell, provider. So I usually tell my teens that they should start keeping track of their periods. And I usually recommend they do it either on a calendar yeah. or an app that they use to keep track of their periods. And the teaching for peds endocrinologists has typically been, you know, 21 to 45 days for menstrual periods. And I don't know how you feel mm-hmm. about that. And usually I tell patients that their periods can be irregular for the first two years after they start having periods. But after that mm-hmm. point, if they, you know, are keeping track and like you said, they're irregular or some of my patients go six months without a period or three months without a period. And you wouldn't say that is a time that they need to see a doctor, right? Definitely. Right. So definitely not normal. I think the 45, you know, and again, the teachings are going to vary a little bit. Certainly, I will agree with when a woman first starts getting her menses, you know, sometime around ages 11, 12, et cetera, somewhere in those early teens. We know that the brain potentially has not fully matured. And so we know that in that first year in particular, potentially up to two years, there can be irregular menses just due to the immaturity. So that's important for a healthcare provider to understand. Certainly beyond the two years, having regular monthly cycles definitely would be recommended and would be warranted. 45 is maybe pushing it a little bit in my, for my taste, (laughs) but, but I definitely think that those first two years in particular. Now, what I will say is, you know, again, if let's say there's a history of in the family, patients have, you know, the mom, the grandma, everybody has gotten early cycles or late cycles, or there's a history of irregular cycles, that can also be something to consider. And then certainly tracking is helpful because, you know, who can keep track in their head of was it 28? Was it 30? You know, that's too hard to remember. Typically, I have, you know, recommended apps because we're all on our phones these days. And so it makes it easier. You know, I think for the older group, post Roe v. Wade, and with some of the tracking that has come from those apps, there's a little hesitation. And so going Mm -hmm. back to just the pen and paper calendar that can't really be tracked or can be easily shred is also a great way to do it. Something to just take note. Okay, if I look back at my last three or four months, you know, what was the cycle? And the other question I get is, you know, heavy period and what's a normal blood flow. And a lot of girls who I see, sometimes they're missing school. Sometimes the college girls are missing their class, so they're Mm -hmm. missing work. And so do you have a way that you can say, okay, this is considered a heavy period. This is considered a normal period. What's your, just what's your talk go-to that you talked about with that? Sure. So, so that also is going to be somewhat subjective and variable between patients. And so generally what I'll say is if your periods have had a certain flow and there's been a change. So, you know, you notice that they've gotten, you know, noticeably heavier from the last six months. So anything that's a chain, 
you definitely want to make sure that you're getting evaluated. Outside of that, you know, things that could could constitute more acute or more emergent situations would be things like you're bleeding through a pad an hour, you're getting lightheaded, you're getting dizzy, maybe you're getting anemic, you know, your Mm -hmm. primary doctor has you on iron supplementation. So that all would constitute definitely abnormal, definitely talking to a healthcare Mm -hmm. provider. Now, if you're somewhere in between and you're just not really sure, the CDC has a great score sheet and they do it based on pads and tampons. Because if you read the textbook definition for heavy flow, it's based on milliliters of blood or amount of flow. And what's up until the menstrual cup came around, there was really not a good way for women to quantify the blood that they were losing because they were using pads or tampons. So now with the menstrual cup, that does become an option. But for most women, most teens, they are using CADs and tampons. And so the CDC came up with a score sheet looking at how much you're soaking through a pad, how much you're soaking through a tampon, and then the clotting that you have. Is it, you know, no clots or light clots versus heavy, you know, large clots? And they each get a score. And so at the end, you add up that score. And if your score is over 100 points, then you are considered to have heavy flow. So, so that is one sort of objective standardized way that can be done to assess for heavy flow. I think the larger point here though, is if your flow is bothering you, if it's heavy enough to where, as you mentioned, you're missing out on activities or, you know, you're missing school, then you definitely want to be talking to a healthcare provider because that's something that's quite easily okay. manageable yep. during the teen okay. and young adult Good. years. And, and uh, do you, and does that go along with the pain also? So if teens are having a lot of pain with their periods and so heavy periods and painful periods mm-hmm. necessarily always go together but the recommendations are the same and i think for a long time as obgyns we did not pay enough attention mm-hmm. to women's painful periods we sort of chalked it up to like well this is just part of being a woman and mm-hmm. sort of just you know suck it up kind of a thing and i think as we saw more research being done in this arena what we realized is that painful periods typically are an indication of something else going on. So if you have periods that are not relieved by, you know, regular over-the-counter medication, Tylenol, ibuprofen, Midol, you name it. If you have painful periods that are causing you to miss school, you know, they're affecting your quality of life, you are curled up in bed, you know, et cetera. And they've actually done the study where they've looked at the economic impact of women calling out from period pain. And it's pretty significant. And what we found is that level of pain is definitely, that level of pain is definitely not normal. So in the past, and my hope is that this is changing, but ACOG, which is the American College of OBGYNs, actually did a study that showed that women would see an average of five physicians before they would get a diagnosis for their painful periods. And one of the more common gynecologic conditions Mm -hmm. is a disease called endometriosis. And endometriosis is what we call many times a silent disease because it's not easily visualized on imaging. So when you do a vaginal ultrasound or an abdominal ultrasound, or when you do an exam, it's not necessarily going to show up. And so painful periods, just like heavy periods, a little bit of that needs to be treated based on patient symptoms. So if the patient is reporting, you know, heavier, painful periods, that is something that can be treated and potentially we can intervene much earlier okay. than we have. And so if you're saying, now. you know, 
you know, for me, I would see teens or you know, young adults and, you know, pediatric patients. Yep. So is that something yep. that is diagnosed in that age group or do they typically have to wait until they get older? Okay. It can be. No, it can be. Yeah. And generally, you know, so, so really, if you're going to make a diagnosis of endometriosis, typically it's a surgical diagnosis. That's the gold standard. However, you know, these days, surgery is really reserved for patients where medical therapy has failed. And so a great first line treatment for painful periods is some form of hormone suppression, whether it's birth control, if the mom or the patient are not comfortable with that, okay. some form of progesterone only suppression that they're taking daily and doing that for three months. And I always tell them, I'm like, I know it's going to be just try to stick it out for the three months. Three months seems like a long time, but just try to stick it out. Because at the end of the three months, if there has been a noticeable improvement in symptoms, then there's a high chance that it was related to something GYN, potentially endometriosis. If after three months, there was not a significant improvement, then we need to start looking at other causes. Is there scar mm-hmm. tissue? Is there something maybe intestinal mm-hmm. going on or in their bowels? So I think it's a great sort of, you know, testing and treatment in this three-month okay. course okay. with the patient. Um, and now, you know, if we go back to, you know, our discussion of PCOS for college girls or for, you know, older teens, a lot of times the question comes up with regards to their fertility. And, and no. well, maybe not the younger girls, but the moms always also have questions about fertility and, you know, what does that mean? And so they always ask, you know, is there a lifestyle I should follow? Are there supplements I should take? So what do you tell patients with that with regards to their fertility? And yeah, sure. Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack there. So let me, I'm going to break it down a little bit. So first of all, you know, we know that from the fertility standpoint, so, you know, I'm seeing them when they're wanting to start their families. We know that ovulation dysfunction is the most common cause for infertility. So irregular ovulation, for whatever reason, is reasons PCOS being the most common. And I always tell patients, you know, PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, right, right. is not actually right. cysts on the ovaries. It's a misnomer. It's actually an egg excess disease. And so the way I think about it is like a system overload. So the brain and the ovary are trying to communicate, but there's so much going on in the ovary that the brain, the hormones get overwhelmed. It can't figure out which one to pick. And so it doesn't, right? So ovulation doesn't happen. So what I tell patients is that PCOS Mm -hmm. should be considered a chronic disease, just like thyroid, just like Mm -hmm. high blood pressure, just like diabetes. So PCOS always needs to be actively managed. You are either actively trying to get Mm -hmm. pregnant, and you're probably seeing me for that if you are, or you're actively suppressing the PCOS. And that's probably more when they're going to be seeing you. So when we talk about actively suppressing the PCOS, we talk about three, or I at least talk about three arms to the treatment. And so we talk about the medical treatment. So you'll be working with your healthcare provider. I talk about the supplement and then I talk about lifestyle. So let's go to the medical treatment. The medical treatment for PCOS is essentially the goal is to target the unopposed estrogen production that is occurring. And so by targeting unopposed estrogen, what you have to do is you have to give progesterone. So progesterone is the hormone to balance that out. Progesterone can be given in many different forms. 
For me, I have found my teenagers mm-hmm. do like birth control pills only because many of their friends are already taking them for contraceptive purposes. And so they kind of are just, mm-hmm. you know, the same as all their girlfriends. And it does serve the purpose of contraception if they are sexually active. However, birth control pills are not the only method. There are tons of other progesterone-only options that can be used in the treatment of PCOS. So whether it's a progesterone-only pill, the progesterone IUD, a progesterone implant, a progesterone... I mean, there's all different kinds. And so it's really just talking through what are they going to be the most adherent to? What are they going to be able to do consistently through time? And, you know, I I always tell patients, I don't want to scare people. But unopposed estrogen, the concern there is at the level of the uterus, the development of uterine cancer. And the youngest patient that I have seen with uterine cancer was 24 years old. She lost her uterus at 24. And so even though we're talking about teens and young adults who are not really thinking about pregnancy, this piece is so, so important because it could impact their future fertility. So balancing out that unopposed estrogen is super important. And then with regards to supplements, there's really not, you know, the supplement world, and you know this just as well as I do, is that the data is a little bit tough just because doing the rigor, you know, standardized control trials is tough. Generally speaking, inositols have come up as a really good supplement for PCOS, myo-inositol and D-chiro-inositol. And, you know, not to speak to any particular brand, but Therologics has a supplement called Ovacetol that contains both of those. So Ovacetol contains myo and D-chiro inositol. It's a powder. You mix mm-hmm. it in liquid. You drink it twice a day. And you're on that basically, mm-hmm. you know, chronic. So you incorporate it into your daily regimen. The studies with inositols mm-hmm. were a minimum of three months. So I always tell patients, if you're going to do it for a minimum of three months before you, mm-hmm. you know, begin to see any changes... But I generally like to have patients on it long term. What they saw with the inositols is that in some women, spontaneous ovulation returned on its own. And for women who are actively seeking pregnancy, again, those are the ones that I'm going to see, they were more responsive to medication. So ovacetol, I say, or I should say the inositols are just a great supplement for specifically for the PCOS population. Um, Sorry, but I'm going to just... And then the third so thing... For that, sorry, go ahead. The, for the age yeah. that we're talking about, is the, are the supplements yeah. useful, helpful? Or are there any risks of those medications? Again, we're talking about girls maybe 14 and above, so, 14 to 20 are. So, yeah. As far as the studies, they I okay. believe the studies were 18 and over. But given the way that they act... There's no reason to think that they would not be helpful okay. in a younger PCOS patient because the idea is they're acting on the IGF and not to get too technical here, but they're acting on the I, downstream of the IGF one receptors at the level of the ovary. So the idea is to improve the hormonal milieu okay. so they're taking, of the ovarian this, mixing it out of supplement and taking it once a day, and twice a day and long term twice a day. You are not. Yeah. The studies haven't shown any long term. Long, yeah, so far the safety profiles have been really positive. So as, as far as long-term risk, I mean, we don't have them to be fair, but so far there's been nothing, you know, like with most supplements, typically we see low side effect profile okay. associated okay, with them. And then the third thing is lifestyle. And I think this is really important mm-hmm. because we're going to touch on a few different things here. 
And, you know, number one, we know that women who have PCOS, there's definitely a metabolic component to the disease. And when I say that, what I mean is that a patient's metabolism is going to be changed. So they are at higher risk for diabetes, fourfold increased risk. They have more difficulty losing weight. They have an easier time putting that weight on, particularly what we call central adiposity or around the belly area. And so really focusing on an active lifestyle that is going to counteract that and a nutrition or sort of diet, right? and I don't mean diet in the lose weight sense, but a diet as in daily meals, that is going to focus on counteracting those two things. So we typically talk about high Mm -hmm. protein, particularly lean Mm -hmm. protein. We talk about complex whole grains. We talk about, you know, lots of veggies, fruit, even though it's considered healthy for PCOS patients, we definitely want to limit just because of the sugar component. But I think it's really important to understand, unfortunately, most PCOS Mm -hmm. women are going to have to work a little bit harder and do a little bit more than somebody who doesn't have PCOS. And that's just the name of the game, unfortunately. I think it's important to note two things. Number one is that given the risk of diabetes, these girls, teens, and adolescents should be checked their sugars on a yearly basis. And if they do come back pre-diabetic, I am pretty aggressive about treating with metformin. And metformin is very safe. It's been around a long time and can not only help with the pre-diabetes or insulin resistance, but could also help with the PCOS components. Mm -hmm. Metformin, I don't use in everyone. But if there is documented insulin resistance or prediabetes, that's something that I use pretty liberally. And then the second thing is just really understanding that the nutrition and exercise has to be considered part of the treatment plan. So in the same way that you're using progesterone, in the same way that you're using the inositols, in the same way that you may or may not be using metformin, you definitely want to make sure that you are really tailoring your nutrition and your exercise to, it, to be included okay, as part yeah. of your treatment That's of your very PCOS. helpful. And you know, I've been using metformin for many years as an endocrinologist, and I've always told my patients that, you know, usually the metformin dose, again, for, you know, we want to focus on prevention of diabetes because that's really, you know, why I care about it as a hormone specialist. And I really got interested yep. in PCOS management, but prevention of diabetes is usually lifelong. And so I would absolutely agree with you as far as the lifestyle yep. is concerned. That's really, you know, I'm glad to hear you say that it is a chronic disease, just like diabetes. So we just want to say, you know, we can manage it. Mm -hmm. We can manage the symptoms. And, and, you know, when they, when I, when do I need to refer to someone like you? So if they have questions early on about fertility, I mean, that's the biggest question these girls have is, you know, what do I do? Is there anything I can do to, you know, when I want to get pregnant? And maybe they're not wanting to get pregnant when they're 21, but maybe it's 31. And so, what is the earliest they should see a reproductive endocrinologist? And in addition to following these lifestyle and, you know, medication therapy and supplements. Sure. So again, it's not like a black and white answer. What I will say, you know, my, my blanket answer always is if you are concerned enough and you, you have more questions than maybe you know, the endocrinologist or the PCP or, you know, the peds can address, then you can always see a reproductive specialist. We are hormone specialists. That is, you know, also what we do, but in older populations. And so we're happy to have that counseling session, particularly if the mom also wants to be involved, you know, and the daughter is comfortable, we'll do a consultation together. So I just want to sort of blanket statement that 
But I will say that really because the PCOS needs to be actively managed. So let's say, you know, you just turned 30 or you just got married or, you know, there's been a, now a change where you think you're ready to start building your family and you want to come off of your progesterone support. So at that point, you need to be working with somebody who understands PCOS and who is going to manage you actively. So unfortunately, what I see sometimes is, you know, the patient was on birth control for 10 years for her PCOS, got married, and then was off of it for a year and a half because they were trying at home. And unfortunately, because of her PCOS, she's not having regular cycles. And so trying at home, you know, that's really sort of a it's almost like an oxymoron because if you're not ovulating, then trying is going to be extremely difficult. So if you come off of your progesterone support when you're ready to start trying and you don't see predictable cycles over a three to four month period, then you need to go see someone. You need to be working with someone, either your OBGYN or a fertility specialist who genuinely and truly understands PCOS. Up until that point, Seeing a fertility specialist, you know, can be helpful from an informational standpoint, but it's probably not necessary. And then the second part to the question, which is what can I do? It's really important that you be as optimized as possible. And so what I mean by that is doing all the supplements, being at your optimal weight, you know, doing all the things that we've been talking about in this live leading up into the start of your family building. Because again, another scenario that I see all too commonly is that unfortunately the PCOS has not been well-managed or the lifestyle component, the nutrition, the exercise, the weight are all things that have sort of been left by the wayside. And now as they're ready to start building their family, it's is the first time that we're having that conversation. And unfortunately, you know, if they're young, I will actually tell them, take six months, take 12 months, really focus on optimization of all of these things and then come back to me. But sometimes if they're older, particularly if they're over 35, we don't really have the luxury of time. And so now the battle to overcome some of those PCOS problems becomes much more difficult. So starting at a young age, being informed and keeping it optimized throughout young adulthood is only going to set you up for better success towards the future. And I have one, actually I have two last questions about the birth control pills. One thing that I always get is, will being on birth control pills prevent me from getting pregnant in the future? That's always a question I get from moms. Yeah. Yeah. So I Mm -hmm. answer that Mm -hmm. question at least once a week myself. And, oh, you know, I took birth control for 10 years or 12. Do you think that did anything or whatnot? And the short answer is no. We actually have very good data at this time, you know, now looking at more long-term usage of birth control pills. And what we found is that once you stop the pill, you have an immediate return to your baseline fertility. Now, if your baseline fertility is irregular cycles and no ovulation, then obviously you're not going to ovulate and you're going to have problems with fertility. But that's not because of the birth control pill. That's just your baseline fertility. And then you have the opposite extreme. In fact, what happened with me is that you come off the mm-hmm. birth control pill and you get pregnant okay. right away, month one, right. you know, and you never get a period. And so really we have found zero long-term impact to fertility with any amount okay. of usage okay. of the birth control. And then the last question I have is, do these birth control pills make me gain weight? And that's always, that's another question that I always get. Yeah. Ooh. 
That's a good question. Yeah. So I'm going to tell you sort of what the research says, and then I'm going to tell you anecdotally what my experience has been. And in the research, they have looked at this and they have not found significant weight increases with the birth control pill specifically, different than some of the other, specifically Depo-Provera. Depo-Provera is a shot. It's given every three months. Women did report weight increase with that. With the birth control pill taken daily, they did not see the same impact to weight. Now, anecdotally, I will tell you that in my clinical experience, it's kind of a plus minus five pounds. So it's not significant. Birth control is not the reason you gain 20 or 30 pounds. Absolutely not. But can it cause a two to three, four, five pound change? I have seen that. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you so much. This was so helpful and so important for our yeah, you're to, welcome. to learn about. <laughs> I learned a lot myself, actually, and I've been trading PCOS for many years. So I want to thank awesome. you for your time again, and I really appreciate you answering all these questions for us. Thank you so much for having me. And if anyone has questions after watching this live, they can always drop it in the comments okay. or DM me. I'm happy thank to you so much as okay. well. Bye. Disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is intended for educational and informational purposes only. The content is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it based on information shared on this podcast. The host, guests, and creators of this podcast do not endorse or promote any specific treatment, product, or medical institution. Reliance on any information provided by this podcast is solely at your own risk.